Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Hey, once again, welcome to Loving Liberty. All right, here we go, off and running in the second hour of our broadcast and podcast. If you'd like to join the conversation, I'd love to hear from you. Here's how you can do it, 801-331-8113. I I spent some time last hour talking about Chick-fil-A, talking about... uh, Julian Assange and and a very interesting story about uh, police in Indiana putting a GPS tracker on a guy's car. He found it, apparently kept it, didn't destroy it, but they charged him with theft because hey, that's ours. <laughs> and it made me think of, of uh, a meme that's been making the, the rounds. Uh, I don't know. You don't have to agree with it to, to see the humor in it. And it's it's poking fun at the, the practice of civil asset forfeiture. And essentially, it's one of those red light or or speed cameras that takes a picture of your car's license plate if you drive by and you're going too fast. And the idea being that, uh, you know, somebody came and took that speed camera thing and um, basically the police department received a notice. Well, yes, uh, we believed it may be involved in some criminal activity. So uh, we've taken it under civil asset forfeiture and it'll be up to you to prove it's not being used for some kind of criminal activity. You can get your property back if you're you know able to prove that to us. It's kind of funny when someone's, you know, putting the shoe on the other foot. Now, of course, the state never sees it in those terms. They they tend to take this kind of stuff very seriously. And there's a fair amount of harumph, harumphing going on, you know, as, as a result. Uh, but, you know, the point is still well taken. You, can, you know you're dealing with aristocracy. Notice how I didn't call it tyranny, but aristocracy. You know that you're dealing with aristocracy when you know that uh, there's one set of rules for them and another set of rules for the rest of us. That's not a good thing. That's uh, not something we should aspire to. And yet here we are. All right, got a couple fun ones uh, this hour. I want to talk for a moment about, uh, I want to answer the question here, hopefully, are political and social conflict accelerating? Now, before I throw an answer out there, I want you to ponder that for a moment. If someone were to ask you, are political and social conflict accelerating? I have a hunch that most people would say, yeah, I would say so. But here's the real kicker. Why? See, that's going to be a little bit tougher. How do we how do we spell out that? uh, Yeah, it's, it's happening. But but do we know why it's happening? So I want to share with you an article here by Charles Hugh Smith. This is from OfTwoMinds.com. It was published on Lou Rockwell today. And I think he has some points of view worth considering. Now, he says yes, without, without any hesitation. Uh, yeah, the economic, social, and political conflict is accelerating. In fact, he says it's self-evident. But he says what's open to debate are the core drivers of this conflict, disorder slash unraveling. But he says here's the core self-reinforcing dynamic in his view. Number one. The status quo elites can no longer mask the soaring costs of essentials, nor soaring wealth slash income inequality between the top 0.01%, the oligarchs, and the top 9.99% who enrich the oligarchs with their discretionary spending and technocratic managerial labor, and the bottom 90% who are rapidly losing ground on all fronts, 
economic, social, and political. Number two, he says the elite's fixes to the social-political conflicts are unleashed by the rigged financial system and winner-take-most economic order that are politically expedient, meaning they don't actually address the sources of the conflict. They just paper them over with PR as a means of preserving the elite's wealth and power. Let me put that in plain language. When a politician comes to you with a solution, it's a solution to his problems, not yours. Number three, the elite's fundamental financial fix is to create trillions in newly issued currency and then distribute this to banks, financiers, super wealthy families and global corporations, the top 0.01%, the oligarchs. Now, this fix accelerates the asymmetric distribution of wealth by enabling the already wealthy to buy more productive assets, to fund stock buybacks, etc., while forcing the bottom 90% to borrow money from the oligarchs in order to make ends meet. The rich get richer, the poor become more indebted. Number five, the only possible output of these inputs, political expediency to preserve the elite's wealth and power, and the creation and distribution to the oligarch class of trillions in new currency, is the acceleration of the very erosion that fueled social and political conflicts in the first place. In effect, the elite's fixes are accelerating the conflicts that will ultimately lead to their downfall. And he says, this is why the unraveling cannot be reversed or stopped all the enormous efforts being expended by the elites to maintain the status quo exactly as it is now with the majority of wealth and power in their hands preclude the structural changes needed to reset the status quo onto a more sustainable in other words more transparent productive efficient and decentralized and less rigged to benefit the few path he also says all those status quo fixes tend to just hasten the collapse of the status quo He says, my longtime colleague, Gordon T. Long, has laid out the stages of this inevitable descent into conflict and collapse in a series of charts that they discuss in their latest video conversation. He's got a link to this, so I'll post this in the show notes. He says, these stages are predictable because human nature is predictable. The elites will follow a pathway of expediency to preserve their wealth and power that they would do this, it's, it's predictable. And this pathway includes the debauchment of currency, printing ever greater sums to add to their wealth and placate the masses, the substitution of credit for capital, the political disenfranchisement of the masses, and increasingly oppressive financial repression and social political conflicts that spiral out of control as the inherently unstable financial house of cards collapses. Now listen to his concluding thought here. Since the elites won't allow an orderly reset that reduces their wealth and power, the reset will result from spiraling conflicts and the collapse of all that is viewed as permanent. In other words, the financial and political status quo. Let me read that one more time because I want to make sure you understand what he's saying. Because the elites won't allow an orderly reset, and they won't do this because it would mean that their wealth and their power would be reduced in that reset. The reset that is coming will result from spiraling conflicts and the collapse of all that is viewed as permanent. In other words, the financial and political status quo. And he says, don't think it won't happen just because it hasn't happened yet. Now, if that sounds doom and gloomish to you, I I get it. It's a hard truth. It's not one that I want to face, or at least I don't want to willingly face it and see it for what it is in the light of day, big as life and twice as ugly. 
but I believe he's absolutely right. Look, consumer debt is, is bad enough. And anybody who lives with debt understands. It's like trying to, to, to break the surface just to grab a little, little, little gasp of air before you start sliding back under. Some people still have a long enough memory that they can remember what it was like in 2008 and 2009. And it was like that for a lot of people. And there were a lot of folks who ended up declaring bankruptcy, losing their homes, cars repossessed, things like that. Why? Because what they had wasn't really theirs. It was being purchased on time. It was debt. They were chained to it. That's bad enough. But you add to that the problem that we have people in elected positions and people in other positions of responsibility who spend and spend and spend because in, in their belief or in their belief system, we have to. This is so important. You know, um, I'm going to pick on my home state of Utah for a moment here. Quality of life is pretty good in this state. It's not that we don't have problems, but we have a very robust economy for the most part, probably one of the best in, in the country, or at least in the top 20. There's a lot happening here. And yet, no matter how well the economy goes, no matter how well the average person may be doing, there's always this insatiable thirst for more tax revenue. And so they've had this tax task force going around trying to justify to the people of Utah, we are going to have to raise taxes. They want to start taxing services. And it could be the kid who mows your lawn. It could be the woman who teaches your kid uh, piano lessons. They all need to start collecting sales taxes on their services so that the state can have more revenue. Now, I get it. It's, it's in the character of politicians to try to tax everything they can. But behind that desire to tax whatever they can is a belief that we have to do this because there are things that we are providing through state government and through some of the various uh, you know, partnerships and matching grants that we get from the federal government. We have to do this. Otherwise, these programs would have to be cut. And, and that's the implied threat. Well, we'll just have to throw the old people out in the streets. They'll be eating dog food and dying by the hundreds. There's never any talk about cutting spending. There's never any talk about letting the private sector solve problems where it rightly could and should be solving problems. If I sound a little worked up on this, it's because I am. What are your thoughts? 801-331-8113. We'll take a quick break. We'll be back right after these messages. Welcome back to Loving Liberty, 801-331-8113. I admit it, I'm on a bit of a tear, but it's because uh, my pocketbook is already smarting, and I can feel somebody reaching for my back pocket to take a little bit more. Utah lawmakers, I'm looking in your direction. Let's go to the phone. i got Rob standing by. Rob, how are you today? I'm good. Can you hear me okay? Loud and clear. So I guess there was a some sort of a demonstration up at the uh, Capitol today. Is that oh, correct? I I don't know. I hadn't I hadn't seen. Oh, on the fir- uh, over the taxes, the uh, the food tax that is now being proposed to be raised, and you know, and some people are going to pay more, and some people are going to pay less, and you know, it, they they really make it very complicated. 
with some of these tax codes that and, and these new laws that they legislate. This is why we need them and their sophisticated tutelage to tell us when and how much to cough up. Well, I mean, I got I got to say, the stuff they come up with with the, the codes is, is is hard to understand and hard to believe that they're actually doing it. I mean, I, I know your point of view is you don't want to pay any taxes at all. Well, I want to pay taxes that I actually have a say in paying. Because believe it or not, there are some things for which I would pay taxes. Given the chance, you know, there are some things. If somebody came and wanted to make the case, hey, we would be better served if we had, you know, our own fire department or we had, you know, a park or something like that. If they can make the case for me, I might be willing to do it voluntarily. But there's no voluntarily about it. It's, you know, pay up or else. Yeah, I mean, we've come to this, we've come into this uh, mindset that we... And, and they push it down your throat of all these different divisions of government that used to be volunteer. I mean, fire departments, look at, they used to be all volunteers. You know, and you can't, I guess you can't have it with this large, you know, population growth. But we, we, we have become, you know, hindsight on all this stuff. It, it's, it's like a cannibalistic economy here in the state of Utah. Like, we're not going to do good unless we keep raising taxes. You know, now this this whole service tax thing that they're proposing, I mean, that's going to be, what is it, somebody was telling me it's almost 7% on your hourly wage is what they're trying to come up with. Well, and to make everybody involved in some form of commerce an unpaid tax collector for the state, not to mention taking aim at the gig economy, which, look, like it or not, that's a thing. You know, the Uber driver, the, the Lyft driver, the people who do things, you know, just, uh, you know, go from this gig to that gig. That's a very viable way for some people to make a living. The state just wants its cut. The services you're talking about. But yes, many other services. services that they're trying to get into as well, not just Uber and stuff like, No, it's, you know. it's everything. And that's, yeah, this is, that's the, the, the rub for me. But, but I was listening to a show here the other day and... I think it, her name was Delane England. Oh yeah, That's yeah. Right. So she was. She was saying she had read the bill and God, if she's listening, I hope she calls in. I'd like to get that information on how to view the bill because I've, I've googled a few things and you don't get very clear, you know, literature on it. Um, she was saying some services are exempt from the the bill, and I'm just kind of curious as to what. You know, services are. Tim Quinn was the one who originated this bill. He's uh, he's out of Heber, that's District Fifty Four. He's he's the guy who originated this bill last year, and it was shot down. And uh, you know, I'm kind of curious as to what professions are excluded from this bill. I, I'm very curious on that. I I, I may know, actually I'm, reach out to Delane during the uh, the break. And just see if I could. I'll, I'll text her. I, she and I are friends. I'll see if I can uh, can get some some insight on this. Maybe if she, if she's free, I can persuade her to jump on the air with me. That would be great. I mean, I just I just don't see how. I mean, me myself, I, I would much rather in the state go towards a flat tax for everybody. Get rid of all these complications. Go towards a flat tax. You know, people would save a lot of headache and a lot of CPA. You know, expenses on this, and, uh, you know, it would get rid of a lot of loopholes for a lot of people. You know, loopholes, write-offs and all that stuff, I mean, let's face it, a lot of people benefit from them. 
you know, and uh, I want some cuts in spending, though, to be a part of the conversation. Absolutely. That's absolutely. the thing I'm not hearing. Look, if they were proposing, look, we want to do these tax increases, but we're going to offset these by cuts in other areas. Um, I might be more inclined to listen to what they have to say. But if it's just, no, 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 we need more money. We need to find more ways of getting a piece of whatever action you're getting, Rob, or you're getting, Brian. Um, that's unacceptable to me. Yeah, they're not. They're not. You know, I, I actually spoke to the, uh, a staff member at the governor's office the other day. And, uh, you know, it, it doesn't sound like they are. They're willing to hear your express your concerns. But I, I don't believe that they're willing to. Uh, you know, make any cuts in spending, and and I kind of see that as problematic. You know, I think we need to start. You know, government needs to start experiencing that because, and let's face it, when, when does it end? As far as taxes going up, I mean, they just keep going up and up and up. I mean, and as that happens, you know, labor has to go up, materials yep. has to go up, costs people, go up. Yeah, I mean, what happened 30 years ago when you could buy a house here for $29,000 and, and, you know, your your minimum wage was 5 bucks an hour, $6 an hour. Was, and people were happy. They were fine. The state of Utah just kept moving along. Like, people took Sundays off and relaxed. It was quiet. What happened to that place that that's why so many people kept coming here? Now you're losing the exact thing of what people are coming to the state of Utah for is well, becoming a rat race. And and it's again, at some level, there has to be a discussion of the state not doing things that it's currently doing or, or refraining from going into areas where it's, it's looking and saying, hey, you know, maybe we could get in there and create some kind of a program. I get it. People love the benefits. They love, the, you know, the goodies that come to them through, you know, different bureaucrats or elected leaders. But there's a proper role of government, and there's things that it should rightly do, and there's things that it shouldn't be doing. I'd like to see a well, return you know, to that you discussion. Know, Brian, Brian the, the, the bottom line is, it'd be great if the math, worked. the math isn't working on all municipalities and counties across this whole country. They're all going in bankrupt, and they're all going in the red. They can't afford their pension plans that they're promising these folks. So the bottom line is, in reality, the math is not working. So that's the prime problem and and i wish these legislators and these leaders would understand that and you know take it in and and admit that it's not working they're not doing that i'm with you rob thanks for calling in man great to hear from you take care man all right 88 whoops let me give the right number i thought i don't know what number i was going to give but it wasn't the right one 801-331-8113 i was just going to make up a number uh let's uh 1-800 call me now 800, call me now, and whoever's on the end of that line is going to be like, why am I getting calls about this? I go back to Charles Hugh Smith's article, and, and you may not think of, well, you know, there, there are, you may think that there are, there are no oligarchs in Utah that are pulling these kinds of strings. I beg to differ. And I think uh, if, I, if I could be so bold, I think the reason Mitt Romney is now a United States senator representing, ostensibly, the state of Utah is proof. He's there because the oligarchs from the federal level right down to the state level felt it's in our best interest to have him there. Why? Because we can count on him to play ball. We can count on him to be the chameleon who will do. He'll tell you whatever he thinks you need to hear to keep you pacified and referring to him as Brother Romney. But he'll do what we want because that's really where his 
that's where his influence lies and that's where his his loyalties are. You know, he may be a perfectly nice guy. I've never met the guy in person. I did attend a Lincoln Day dinner last year where he spoke and it was uh, it was a pretty tepid reception for him, but considering that Ron Paul was also speaking there, that may be understandable. But now you've got John Huntsman Jr. lining up for a shot at the governor's seat. I think he's probably got some pretty good ties with the oligarchs himself. Again, he may be a wonderful person. I'm not to, you know, I'm not trying to impugn his personal character. I'm just saying the folks he hangs out with have their own interests. And folks, uh, you and I are not represented among those interests. Shrink the size of government. Cut the spending. And stop taking so much of my money. Trusted voices of truth and insight. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, If you want to call in, I would love to hear from you. If you have thoughts to offer on any of the topics thus far covered, I've got another one which which may yank a, a chain or two. So I'm ready to transition to that. 801-331-8113. This is an article from Annie Holmquist on intellectualtakeout.org. Religion and cultural friction are the two related. Now, one of the reasons that this catches my eye is because I have a perception that uh, we are we're at a kind of an interesting place in American history. And this is particularly concerning the role of religion in society. Now, what I'm thinking is this. I think that uh, what, what we're looking at is religion and and uh, its role in society have, have definitely shifted. I mean, look, you don't have to be a conspiracy theorist to to feel like, uh, you know, it's it's not the same as it once was. Uh, candidates used to run on, you know, the, the fact that, hey, I'm a religious person or I, you know, I, I'm a person who isn't afraid to. To embrace religious standards. I know it's I'm, I too get suspicious when someone's a little too overtly religion. Hey, look at me. <laughs> I'm one of you. Uh, but there's no question that re- the, the role of religion has definitely been dimin- diminished. And just the way that people view religion has been cast into serious doubt. And it's not just the, you know, hardcore left wingers who are, you know, um, agnostics or atheists or Satanists or whatever the case may be. There are a lot of conservatives and libertarians and anarchists and like who who are very suspicious, uh, especially when it comes to organized religion. Now, I'm not suggesting that we need to have more commingling of church and state. But I also have taken the time to to spend a little Time, you know, reading the the words of the founders, reading what they said in their private correspondence, reading the 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 insights that they had on what constitutes right and wrong. And while they were careful enough not to create a theocracy, they clearly did not shy away from the fact that religion had a place in their society, if only as a means of teaching morality to large numbers of people. But in our time, ooh, that is that is a quick way to start a fight. Here's how Annie Holmquist describes it. She says, Republicans and Democrats rarely agree on anything. So 
It's not surprising that a new Pew Research report shows them at odds again. But this time the disagreement is on religion and its influence in society. Now, this may seem a little predictable, but, you know, hear her out. Roughly two-thirds of Republicans believe that religion brings people together, strengthens morality in society, and does more good than harm. Less than half of Democrats surveyed in this report believe the same. Both parties agree, however, that religion is losing influence in American life. Now, whether that's a good or a bad thing is a different story, depending on party affiliation. And she has a chart here that very closely uh, shows uh, what what these uh, those leaning Democrat or Democrats uh, or Republicans or those leaning Republican think about uh, the, the role of religion in society. So, for instance, if they were asked, do churches and religious organizations do more good than harm in American society? Forty four percent of Democrats and those who lean Democratic said, uh, yeah, it, it does more good than harm. Seventy one percent of Republicans or those who lean Republicans said the same. When it comes to churches and religious organizations strengthening morality in society, 41% of Democrats surveyed said they agreed. 68% of Republicans said that they agreed. And the numbers are pretty consistent when it comes to the question of mostly bring people together. 39% of Democrats said yeah. 65% of Republicans said yes. When they asked, do churches and religious organizations not have enough influence in politics? Democrats, only 19% of them said, yeah, 38% of Republicans said yes. When asked if religion is losing influence in American life, 74% of Democrats said, oh yeah, 83% of Republicans applied, replied in the affirmative. When asked, is this a good thing? 27% of Democrats said, I'm sorry, when asked if this is a bad thing, 27% of Democrats said, yeah, it's a bad thing. 63% of Republicans said, It's a bad thing. When asked if it's a good thing, 7% of Democrats said yes, 25% of Republicans said yes. When asked if religion is gaining influence in American life, only 16% of Republicans said so, 24% of Democrats said yes. Now that skepticism is reflected in another question about the good that religious organizations do. Not surprisingly, a minority of those who identify as the religious nuns, N-O-N-E-S, see the value in them. And this chart is, is a little too complex to break down just strictly, you know, by reading it to you. But most Christians say religious organizations do more good than harms. But the religious nuns, the ones who have no affiliation, they're not so sure. Now, Annie Holmquist says these views are understandable especially for religious nuns. For if you have no religion, it's unlikely you're going to experience the positives that it can bring. So for those who find themselves in this spot, she says perhaps it would be helpful to look around at externals in society. And here's where she asks some questions that might make a few people go, hey, wait a minute. She asks, how is our morality? How are our community ties? Is society operating in an orderly fashion? 20th century historian Russell Kirk had some things to say on these points in his 1974 work, The Roots of American Order. This is what Kirk said, quote, all the aspects of any civilization arise out of a people's religion, its politics, its economics, its arts, its sciences, even its simple crafts are the byproducts of religious insights and a religious cult. I don't think he's using that as an epithet either. He says in the common worship of the cult, a community forms. At the heart of every culture is a body of ethics, of distinctions between good and evil. 
and in the beginning, at least, those distinctions are founded upon the authority of revealed religion. End quote. Well, sure, the religious nuns may say, religion has had a big influence on society, but we live in a contemporary age. Lack of religion doesn't really affect our quality of life today, does it? And Annie Holmquist says Kirk would disagree. As he explains, for until human beings are tied together by some common faith and share certain moral principles, they prey upon one another. End quote. In other words, without religion, things can easily fall apart, leaving a society full of division and hatred. Now, Kirk continues, not until a people have come to share a religious, share religious belief are they able to work together satisfactorily, or even to make sense of the world in which they find themselves. Thus, all order, even the ideological order of modern totalist states, professing atheism, could not have come into existence had it not grown out of general belief in truths that are perceived by the moral imagination, end quote. Annie Holmquist says we've reached a time in history in which culture is full of friction between generations, the sexes, and political parties. Given Kirk's insight, could this friction be a direct result of a lost common culture, a common culture that was once rooted in the principles of religious truth and knowledge? That's a pretty fair question, I think. Tell me what you think. 801-331-8113. Now, I want to confess something. Part of why I do what I do is to try to help people find that common ground. This is one of the reasons why I have become, uh, you know, what I've heard some people describe as a political agnostic. I just say I, I become more apolitical as I go. And And interestingly enough, I become more apolitical the more that I have focused on trying to build my relationship with my creator. So if that sounds to you like, well, are you saying you're so much better than us? I'm certainly not. I'm just saying that the more I focus on getting right with God, the less important the political stuff is to me. Now, at the same time, I see a lot of very unnecessary division and friction in society. And I think one of the common areas where people would come together, where they would set aside differences and they would would rally around a common standard, even if they disagreed on a lot of other things, was there were certain core values they could agree on. And so to that end, that's what I try to do is try to identify what are those core values? What are the principles on which we should all be able to agree. Because the principles that I'm trying to get at are the ones that are centered in voluntarism, personal conscience, liberty, the freedom to act without someone else coercing or otherwise twisting your arm and demanding you have to do it this way. I started a little company last year, and it's just, you know, a little LLC. It's called With One Voice. And at first blush, you might think, oh, you're talking about your voice. With your voice, you're going to do this. But what I'm really getting at, the whole purpose behind with one voice is I'm trying to fulfill what I see as a, a personal mission to try to help bring people together on those areas of commonality where we all have a stake to where we can speak with one voice. Not because we're chanting the same slogans, but because, well... Because we're calling out to God with one voice. Kind of what happened during the founding period. 
Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. We are in the home stretch on this Wednesday. Final segment. Let's go right back to the phone, 801-331-8113. Hi, welcome to the show. Thank you, Brian. I appreciate you taking my call. So what are you thinking? Well, what I'm thinking is, um, you know, if I, if I look at the problems in America, you know, may, maybe we'll look at President Nixon, I don't know, and, and definitely President uh, um, Clinton, and then Hillary. And when I start thinking corruption, you know, in America, politics, I start thinking I don't see any morals here. I don't see any values and principles. You know, I, in the old days, um, from what I understand, religion gave us moral compasses, you know, a sense of right and wrong as a community. And um, to me, you know, when there's corruption, people violate those sense of right and wrong. Now, um, you know, I don't understand. I guess people think it's okay to vote people in that, that don't have principles. But, you know, I mean, one of the biggest things is I look at President Trump, and he's keeping his promises he made at campaign speeches, all 19 of them. He's been really pushing for them, even though there's so much obstruction being fired at him continually. And, and right now, the, there, there's several bills that's sitting on Nancy Pelosi's desk, including the budget. Um, let me ask you something, Ray. Let me, let me just okay. pose a quick question. Um, is it possible, in your opinion... That what we see happening politically, and I'm not limiting it to Trump or Pelosi or any even the current crop of politicians, but what you described this this uh, this drift away from morality, is it possible that this reflects what's happening among the American populace, and that the what we see in our politicians is more of a reflection of who we are becoming than simply that you know the worst have risen to the top? Yes, I agree. There's greed there. You know, they, they don't care how much they tax us. You know, um, before, you know, people sent their neighbors into the office and they would think like a common neighbor and they would do things that was good for the general populace. You know, but now it seems like that the people that are in politics, they're there just to benefit themselves. Oh, I would agree. And I think it's been that way for a long, long time. And I... Look, in fact, I think it's been that way since even before this country was ever founded. This is one of the things that, to me, speaks of the genius of the founding generation. They recognize that human nature doesn't change, even if the names and faces, you know, changed, you know, on the history books. But that's why they, they set up a system of limited government with the power broken up and distributed both vertically and horizontally so that it couldn't be consolidated too much in one place and, and be the, the source of so much of the mischief like we're seeing today. Yes, yes. When I was in my, you know, in adolescent and teens, I didn't see, you know, I, I didn't really pick out that in the Bible, in, in Christianity, that the morals and the values and the principles were taught in all of the stories. And I wasn't, you know, I wasn't born again. I didn't, wasn't a practicing um, Christian then, but I am now. The older I got... The more I could see in the 1800s, 
people to get ahead, you know, it was to improve your character, be loyal to your employer, trustworthy, you know, honest, you know. Uh, characteristics made a person successful. Even the successful literature taught that. But in the 1900s, it was more relative ethics. It was more, you know, do what you can do to get ahead, to manipulate people. Yeah. And, you know, to, to, to who can get the best deal, that's who's successful. But see, I think it's so obvious now that in the Bible, those are time-tested, historically proven principles and morals that work. And I think the problems in America, we've gotten away from them. And I know that I don't, I wouldn't be married now. I've been married for 41 years now. And I, I would, I was a different person before I became a Christian, before I was born again. And now I do try to practice and take seriously the teachings in there and try to live them, you know, with my neighbors and in in my employment and everywhere I go. Before that, I didn't. It, it was all about me. Ray, I appreciate you sharing your wisdom with us and your experience today. Thank you so much. It's Look, I, I don't think Ray is saying, and I'm not saying that oh, religion is the answer to everything, but if you're, if you're really trying to affect the kind of change that, that actually improves society, it's not something that can be imposed as some kind of a mass solution, you know, from the top down. And unfortunately, that's kind of where we are led to believe today. Well, you know, if we can just get the right person in office and enact the right policy, and from the top down, they're going to hammer this solution down on our heads, and then we're all going to be better for it. That's not how it works. Character, which Ray referenced, that starts with the individual. And this is one of the reasons, you know, you want to know why does liberty connect so inseparably with this concept of, of character? As Lawrence Reed talks about, you, you know, if, if you want to be a people who are worthy of freedom, you have to be able to live up to and be good enough to qualify for it. People who don't control themselves, people who are unwilling to exercise self-governance, they can't be free. Not for long. Because they'll paint themselves into an ever-shrinking corner of despair and consequences. We talked about this a little bit yesterday. And here's the cool thing about it. And I, I love Ray's example here. The change that has to take place has to start on the individual level. When a person, you know, becomes converted religiously... That's not a mass thing that, well, everybody all of a sudden had it at once and we all thought the same thing. Nope, it's an individual thing. And that's why I don't think it's, it's wasting time or I don't think it's wasting effort when we spend time focusing on improving ourselves. And, and in my thinking, you know, for, for a person who is of a religious you know, perspective, improving yourself starts with improving your relationship with your creator. Getting right with God, as my friend Joe Carey would say. And you can see the people who have applied this. How? Look for someone who is doing something good. Not so they can be seen and celebrated. Why? Look at what a good person I am. Thank you. I will hold for the applause. Thank you. Thank you. Where would I pick up my Nobel Peace Prize? Nope. I'm talking the simple goodness. Things like believing in a kid. 
who needs someone to believe in them, lest they step off the edge into something that will, you know, destroy them or or lead them to a very unsuccessful conclusion. It could just simply be reaching out and helping a person that you see that that needs help in the moment, encouragement, maybe some financial help. Maybe they need their driveway shoveled. I don't know. But it all comes back to what uh, are, I believe, some very well-established, time-tested religious tenets that, uh, br- that actually bridge the gap between all the world's religions. It's the golden rule. It's the idea you treat other people the way you would want to be treated. When somebody holds a door for you as you're approaching a business, does that not reaffirm you matter, even if it's in a small way? It's showing that someone is willing to acknowledge who you are and your worth in their eyes and by extension in God's eyes. And I know I'm keeping this very simple, but that's the whole point. It's found in the little details, but the impact that it has is just as real as can be. And one of the great concerns that I have is that we are so caught up in everything that's happening politically and everything that is is taking place around us that tends to divide us or make us break up into little tribes and have to defend our little hill on which we're going to die. We forget that being a good person is really what changes the world for the better, no matter where you happen to be standing. You've heard me say before that there's a, there's a kind of false righteousness out there. And I think politics is rife with this kind of stuff. I am against this. I am against that. I am against this person or that person. It's so easy to be against something. All you have to do is just declare it. Look at me. Look how good I am. Look at my virtue signal. I'm so woke. <laughs> I am against racism. I am against slavery. Things that it's very safe to be against, by the way. But the people who are making the biggest difference, in my opinion, are the people who are actually doing the heavy lifting of being decent, good people in everything that they do. I would say consider being the latter. That's where the biggest changes come from. Welcome to the Loving Liberty Radio Network. 